0: Lord God, we thank you for this time together. Please open our eyes to your marvellous word this morning. Help us to enjoy our time hearing from the words of Jesus himself. And please transform our hearts through what we hear and through what we understand. Amen. I want to begin just um, by asking you to imagine it's perhaps a regular Monday afternoon, so maybe tomorrow afternoon, and um, you're at home, maybe out in the front, doing some gardening or uh, maybe getting something from the letterbox, which is one of Jonathan, my son's favourite activities to do, Um, or perhaps you've just pulled into the driveway back home from work, and you notice that the neighbours beside you, the new neighbours that you've been expecting have arrived. Uh, the removal trucks there with all of their furniture and the family car pulls up and, and the family bundles out and so you make your way over to greet them and to say hello and to welcome them to the neighbourhood. And um, in the course of the conversation, you invite them over um, the coming Saturday for a meal and uh, you're keen to get to know them better. But unfortunately, they explain that uh, they can't come over on Saturday because that's the Sabbath it's a holy day. They're Seventh-day Adventists. They explain that um, they believe that, the, that Saturday is the Sabbath because of the Old Testament law, as it was given to Moses. Um, it's a special day of rest, in their view, for worship and spending time with God and with family. And so you agree instead that they'll come over uh, another night during the week, perhaps for dinner. And because it's 2024 and everyone's got some sort of food allergy, you ask them what they're allergic to uh, so that you can prepare and instead of um, them explaining that they're allergic to anything, what they'll say is uh, they actually follow the Old Testament laws as they regard food, uh, particularly the um, stipulations set out in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so they tend to avoid certain sorts of foods considered unclean um, by the Old Testament, such as you know pork and shellfish and other types of seafood. Now, that might be enough for you, but if you're particularly bold what you might do then is ask them how they can justify their view on that based on the Old Testament law. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that that law is abolished with Jesus' coming? Aren't the Sabbath and food laws part of the Old Testament that's done away with when Jesus came? Now, my experience of Seventh-day Adventists is that they were reasonably well-versed in their Bibles, and so what they would do in this situation is show you a number of passages that seem to indicate, including from the New Testament, that those laws still apply. And eventually, at some point, what they'll do is they'll arrive at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Now, hopefully this works. It does. All right, good. Well, hold on to that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, the words of Jesus written here in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And I'm reading from the ESV here. Um, You'll have to forgive me. But I checked the KJV and it's more or less the same. And then Jesus proceeds in verse 19 to say, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, they'll tell you, Jesus himself says that he didn't come to set aside the law of the Old Testament, but to establish it. And he commands his followers to keep it. How do you respond to that? The point I want to make here is that there are hundreds of thousands of people who, like our Seventh-day Adventist friends, call themselves Christian but have the wrong view about the Old Testament. And in many cases, it's based on the New Testament texts. Now, on a personal level, this was something that I really struggled with um, in my 20s in particular, As a young Christian, I'd started reading my Bible a lot more intensely, and um, I kept noticing a kind of strange contrast or contrariety that I couldn't resolve. On the one hand, I knew from Paul's writings, things like, um, that Christians are free from the law of sin and death, and he talks about that, of course, in Romans 7. I knew from Galatians 3, that those who rely on the law for their salvation are under a curse. I knew from Galatians 3 as well that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, and that we're no longer under a guardian with his coming. And then, of course, Romans 6, Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So I knew that as a Christian, I wasn't beholden to the law of Moses, that Christ has set me free from that, and that I was saved by grace alone. But... On the other hand, I was also reading passages like Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And our text for today, Matthew 5.19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom, but whoever does them and teaches others them will be called great. So these passages seem to indicate that the law is still relevant and to call for obedience to those laws, much like the Seventh-day Adventist claims. So how is it possible to resolve that tension? That was what bothered me. This morning I want to show you my position on this and kind of how Jesus resolves this tension himself in his most authoritative teaching on the role of the Old Testament law. I want us to understand what Jesus is actually saying here in Matthew 5, about his view on the Old Testament and how it applies to Christians. And what this does is it actually helps unlock a lot of what's in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to see um, today, through our focus on Matthew 5, um, we've got two main points. The first is that the law points forward to Jesus and his teaching, so it's only properly obeyed by conforming to his word. And then point two, he shows us that the law points toward a righteousness that goes far beyond a literal keeping of the Old Testament law. So hopefully you've got your Bibles open there to Matthew 5. We're going to work our way through um, these verses together. Matthew 5, um, starting verse 17. Now, most of you uh, would be aware, as I've kind of mentioned already, that this is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, And that sermon runs across three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And the theme that kind of connects all the parts of that same sermon is the kingdom of God. So the Sermon on the Mount is really a sermon about the kingdom of God or a sermon on salvation. It's describing what the citizens of that kingdom are and how they become part of it. And our verses um, follow on from the very famous Beatitudes that, it, that open up the sermon, and really these, three, these um, verses 17 to 20, they're kind of the segue into what is the body of the sermon, the biggest part of the sermon that runs all the way through to the end of uh, verse 12 of chapter 7. And that body of the sermon sets out ethical guidelines for Christians, for kingdom citizens, But before Jesus gets to that, what he wants to do is to establish what his teaching is in relation to the Old Testament. And it's easy to understand why he did this, right? We know from other places, several places, in Matthew's Gospel and the other Gospels, that people were um, agitated, uneasy about what Jesus' view was on the Old Testament law. Was he teaching and living like the law of Moses was no longer relevant? What was his view? So he anticipates that concern and he addresses it directly here. He's going to tell us how he relates to Moses and the Old Testament. So let's start with verse 17. We're just going to work our way verse by verse um, through the passage. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is one of the trickier verses in Matthew to understand. There are probably half a dozen others that I'd put ahead of the list, but it's one of the trickier ones. The first thing that I want us to notice this morning is what the subject is of the verse. What's the what of the verse? He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what's the them? It's the law and the prophets. So the subject of the verse is the the law and the prophets. Now, I don't know if you're like me, one of those people that has a Bible with markings all through it, but if you are, um, I'd like you to put a little note beside that phrase, Law and the Prophets, just a little equal sign, Old Testament. So, the Law and the Prophets is, is a shorthand way of summarizing the whole of the Old Testament. It's not just the Law of Moses that's in view here, Jesus is actually talking about his mission as it relates to the entirety of the Old Testament. That includes the creation account of Genesis. It includes the laws given to Moses through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It includes the history of the kings. It includes the prophets. It includes the Psalms and the wisdom literature. Jesus is talking about his mission in light of the whole Old Testament. Okay, so that's the subject. Now, the action. What's at stake here is a contrast between abolishment or abolition and fulfillment. I want you to notice that contrast. The contrast is not between abolish and keep. It is between abolish and fulfill. These are two really important words. Um, So, again, if you're a a marker of a Bible, um, I would highlight or circle those in some way. First, he says, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. That verb is kataleo in Greek, and it's typically used to refer to um, destruction of a building or the raising of a building. But Jesus isn't here talking about a building, is he? He's talking about Scripture. So what does it mean to abolish Scripture? When the verb is used in, in reference to a text, um, what it means is to declare that it's no longer valid, to kind of repeal it or annul it. So in effect what Jesus is saying here is, do not think that I came to repeal or annul the Old Testament. I work; My day job is for the Australian government, and um, every time there's a a change in government following an election, what the incoming party will inevitably do is um, repeal or set aside laws or policies made by the former government that they didn't agree with. And once that law is um, repealed or abolished, it's removed from the online register of laws, from the physical register of laws, it's taken off the government websites, and effectively there's no trace of it that's left. It's done away with, it's set aside like it never existed. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do that with the Old Testament. Well, if he didn't come to set it aside in in terms of its validity, what did he come to do? He says he came to fulfill it. Okay, another Greek word here, "plero" is the word fulfill. It's a tricky verb, and it's really the nub of the problem in terms of all the wrong interpretations of this text, and I'll touch on a few of those a bit later. Um, now when you get stuck on a word like fulfill and trying to figure out what it means in the in in the context of let's say Matthew's gospel one of the things that we would do as as good Christians and students of our bible is look at where else in the same book of the bible that word is used right and actually Matthew's got a a specific focus and he's got a, he's been preparing us for this very use of the word fulfill by mentioning it six times in the run up to this Um, statement in chapter 5, and it's something that's very unique to Matthew's gospel. Let me show you a couple of the examples. If you can, flick back to um, chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 20. This is the um, account of the angel, when the angel appears to Joseph, who's considering divorcing his pregnant fiancée, Mary. And verse 20 reads, But as he, Joseph, considered the things, behold, an angel appeared to him and said, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. There's our word fulfill." And it's used to describe how Jesus' immaculate conception fulfilled or was the completion of something that was prophesied 700 years before. Now, flick forward to Matthew chapter 2, um, and we're going to start in verse 13. And this is the account of Jesus being taken to Egypt by his parents because um, Herod is seeking to kill them. And we read in verse 13 there, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel, them being the Magi, um, "an, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so again our word "fulfill" is used to show how an Old Testament prophecy pointed forward to something that would be completed in the life of Jesus. In fact, Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea, um, and he, he's uh, predicting that Jesus would be called out of Egypt. Now, there's four more occasions um, where Matthew uses the word "fulfill" to show really how Jesus is the end goal of the prophecies made in the Old Testament. He uses this term whenever he wants to show the coming into being of something which Scripture pointed forward to. That could be Jesus fulfilling a literal prophecy, like coming out of Egypt, or it could be Jesus being the intended goal of some sort of pattern that was laid down in the Old Testament, like the sacrificial system, for example. So now let's go forward again to Matthew 5. We understand what Um, Jesus means, when he says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament, he's speaking of the way in which he fulfills the pattern laid down in the prophets, but also the law in the Old Testament as a whole. His life and ministry has brought into being everything that they point forward to. Or better, he has given them significance or meaning. Imagine if Jesus never came. Those Old Testament prophecies would still be there, but they would be empty, they would be void, they would be meaningless. But by his coming, he gives them meaning, he fulfills them. So the law and the prophets then look forward to a time which has now arrived. And that means that the Old Testament is not God's last word to people, but it is in some sense provisional, looking forward to its fulfillment through the Messiah. And Jesus indicates that time Is now. So we could paraphrase the verse something like this. I think I've got this. Here we go. Far from wanting to set aside the law and the prophets, it's my role to bring into being that to which they pointed forward, to carry them on to a new era of fulfillment. And then in verse 18, Jesus explains further that every little aspect of the law and the prophets has significance because of the way it points forward. The language of verse 18 in our English is a little bit awkward, um, but I've paraphrased it again here. You could um, imagine this says, The law, down to its smallest details, is as permanent as heaven and earth, and it will never lose its significance. On the contrary, all that it points forward to will become a reality. So what we understand then from these verses is that the authority of the law and the prophets is not abolished. They remain the word of God but their role will no longer be the same. From now on, it becomes the teaching of Jesus, which is the authority on how to understand the law. Jesus is essentially presenting himself as the goal and fulfillment of the Old Testament, and therefore he is its authoritative interpreter. Only through Jesus does the Old Testament find valid continuity and significance. Okay, so that covers the first hopefully this works, that covers the first of our main points for today, that the law pointed forward to Jesus and his teaching, so it's only properly obeyed by conforming to him. Now, I had a lecturer at university who would get to an equivalent point in his lectures about 30 minutes in, and um, he'd stop after having made his main point, and he'd turn the lights down, and uh, he'd say, okay, what I'm going to tell you now is not going to be on the exam. Uh, So those of you who aren't interested, feel free to tune out. But for those who are, we're going to explore something a little bit further and we're going to see something really interesting. Basically what I want to do here is the same. I don't have the the light dimmer, but um, if you need a few minutes of mental break, feel free to tune out at this point. But what I wanted to show you was two wrong interpretations, particularly of Matthew 5, verse 17. And I think this is especially important for us to be aware for our young people's sake. Because what they're going to hear is these two views. I heard them, it confused me for ages. So let me present them to you. Wrong interpretation number one. This verse is saying Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but to establish it, to make the law apply to Christians. There's a whole class of theologians um, who translate or understand the word that we have as fulfill, and they take it and replace it with the word, establish. Those who take that view are called theonomists. Theonomists use um, this different translation to contend that the moral and judicial principles set out in the Old Testament law remain applicable to us today, and they should form actually the basis of our legal systems of judgment. So they say Jesus came not to do away with the law, but to establish its relevance, and that as Jesus' followers, we should establish or hold, uphold those laws given to Moses, And that includes things like the various punishments laid out in the Old Testament for crimes. And what we should be advocating for as Christians today is for our legal system to reflect that law. That would also be the view of our Seventh-day Adventist friends in some ways. And so they take this this text and they use it to uh, support their beliefs about the validity of things in the Old Testament. In their case, it's mostly the food laws. But we've already seen, haven't we, in Matthew's Gospel, that when he uses the word fulfill, he's not meaning establish. He means, I brought it to completion, I gave it effect, I am what it pointed forwards to. And so that's the strongest refutation of that argument. Okay, um, wrong interpretation number two. This verse is just about the moral law, not the whole Old Testament. Okay, so there are Christians who can genuinely hold to this view and and, um, you can hold to this view and be a, a Christian. But it's not a good view to hold to. It's not faithful to the text. I think what the view here is, is basically people recognize that some parts of the law are done away with now that Jesus has come. And so what they do is they try and divide the law into three parts, the civil part, the ceremonial part, and the moral part. And they say, when Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, he's just talking about the moral part, because those other two parts are effectively done away with. We don't do the sacrificial temple worship anymore. We don't, uh, as the theonomists want to do, inflict um, stoning punishment um, on homosexuals, for example. So... That's the way that they get around what Jesus is saying here and try to reconcile it with the rest of the Old Testament. That is with the New Testament, sorry. And that is a noble endeavor, but it's unnecessary. The problem with this uh, interpretation is that it doesn't readily spring from the text, does it? You read the law and the prophets is what I came not to abolish but to fulfill, and you don't think, oh, he's divided the law into three and he's only after one of those three. It doesn't kind of naturally spring from the text. And, as we've already seen as well, Jesus is not just talking about the law. He's talking about the Old Testament as a package. So that view doesn't actually apply in this sense. Okay, now for those who've tuned out, it's time to tune back in. Um, And we're going to bring ourselves to our second uh, point today, which is this, um, that Jesus shows that the law points toward a righteousness that's far beyond literal keeping of the Old Testament laws. And that begins in verses 19 to 20. And Jesus says there, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've heard that verse before kind of just rolls off like water off a duck's back, but that would be a shocking thing to say to the listers in first century Palestine. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. Scribes were the scholars of the law, right? They they were the people who were the experts on the interpretation and and practical application of the law. They're equivalent to our um, lawyers or solicitors. And Pharisees was a sect within the Jews. They were kind of the the, um, Reformation movement, which was devoted to meticulous practice of the law. They placed a special emphasis on the, the laws around purity, around tithing, around Sabbath observance. Every detail of the law was precious to these groups. And they wanted to observe the law in its meticulous detail. And because of that zealousness, they were actually reasonably well regarded by most people, um, in Israel. So, when Jesus then speaks about a righteousness that goes beyond theirs, that would have seemed an impossible, a ridiculous ideal. The paradox of Jesus' demand here only makes sense if Jesus is talking about an altogether different kind of righteousness. He's not talking about beating the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game, but an altogether different concept. What he's saying is, Um, is that citizens of his kingdom have a far different or greater righteousness. And he unpacks what that looks like in the rest of chapter 5, and and it goes on into the rest of the bulk of the sermon. So this is the kind of segue here. So if I wanted to rephrase... uh, Yeah, you can see that, I think. If I wanted to rephrase our passage today, I would would, um, frame it something like this. Jesus is saying, "'Do not suppose that I came to undermine the authority "'of the Old Testament Scriptures, "'and in particular the law of Moses. "'I did not come to set them aside, "'but to bring into reality that to which they pointed. "'I tell you truly, the law, down to its smallest details, "'is as permanent as heaven and earth, "'and it will never lose its significance. "'On the contrary, all that it points forward to "'will in fact become a reality, "'and is now doing so in my ministry.'" So any one of you who treats the most insignificant of the commandments as no value and teaches others to do them the same, that person is an unworthy representative of the new regime. But anyone who takes seriously in word and deed these things will be a true member of God's kingdom. But do not imagine that simply keeping all of these rules will bring salvation. For I tell you truly, it is only those whose righteousness goes far beyond the old policy of literal rule-keeping, which the scribes and Pharisees represent, who will prove to be God's uh, children in his new era of fulfillment. What that kind of helps us see is that the emphasis changes throughout the verses. Verses uh, 17 through 19 have really confronted those who attempted to set aside the whole law of the Old Testament. And verse 20 confronts those who are preoccupied with the opposite, which is scrupulous literal observance. So they miss the whole point of what the law was for, uh, pointing forwards to. And Jesus then unpacks this in verses 21 through 48. Now, I'm not going to go through those verses exhaustively, but I do just want to skim through them very quickly and make a couple of points to help you in your personal study of these verses. Um, as you're scanning through, um, you you would probably notice that there are six examples laid out in verses 21 to 48, where Jesus contrasts his teaching on the law against what the people had understood the law was saying. That's really important. Each of the six examples begin with some version of the refrain, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. Jesus is Um, audience had heard many times what the Old Testament law said, but they'd heard it from the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, in some cases, the scribes had the right understanding of the law, but they didn't know the true extent or direction of the law which it pointed. Only Jesus knew that, and so he addresses that here. And in other cases, the scribes and the Pharisees, what they taught was against the true intent of the law, And so, again, Jesus shows its true intended direction. So, if I had to summarize these verses, I'd I'd say something like this. There are six um, explanations of the law's true direction. Again, if you're a marker of the text like me, you might say verses 21 to 26 are about murder. Jesus takes the sixth commandment on murder, and he shows that it actually points to a theology about anger and peace. In his kingdom. That was not immediately obvious from the sixth commandment. It's not like the Jews just missed something that was there. It's Jesus explaining the true direction which that commandment points now. In verses 27 through 30, he takes the seventh commandment about adultery and he shows how it points to a theology about purity in the kingdom. In verses 31 and 32, he takes the scribes' abuse of the Old Testament laws on divorce, and he shows us that the Old Testament actually points to a theology of sanctity of marriage in the kingdom. In verses 33 to 37, he explains that the Old Testament laws on oaths actually point to the deeper issue of truthfulness that God requires in his kingdom. In verses 38 to 42, he explains that the Old Testament laws on retribution actually point forward to a theology of selflessness in God's kingdom. And in verses 43 to 47, he takes the false teaching about the Old Testament laws on retaliation, and he explains that the true interpretation of these laws points to a kingdom theology of love for one's neighbor. Jesus is doing what Moses and the prophets or the scribes and the Pharisees could never do because they weren't the goal or fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's revealing the true direction of the law. In most cases, that involves a deeper inward attitude of righteousness that goes far beyond the letter of the law and its requirements, which was practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees. So what I want... Uh, what I'm hoping that you've seen today is that Jesus' emphasis is on, in this passage is actually on himself and how he relates to the law and establishing his credentials to teach the law as one having authority. And if you go through to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's the thing that amazes the people, that he taught as one having authority. And that authority is there, obviously, because he alone is the one to whom all those things pointed So Jesus will spend the rest then of the sermon unpacking what that righteousness in the kingdom looks like. What I think this passage helps us do is deal with two wrong tendencies in Christianity. Ignore my son. On the one hand, what Jesus helps us do is um, deal with the tendency of uh, to, to, I guess, abuse, like the teachings elsewhere in the New Testament, about freedom from the law he helps us correct against the tendency to think that the Old Testament laws no longer matter and can be abandoned. And then the other tendency that he helps us balance against is the tendency to emulate the scribes and Pharisees um, and to place an emphasis on on careful literal obedience of the Mosaic law as if nothing had changed with Jesus' coming. And that, I think, is the correction he helps us against for the Seventh-day Adventist friends. But the most important thing that this passage does for me is that it has the practical effect of just helping me relax into Jesus' teaching. I can trust what he says and not be surprised when some of those things are different from the Old Testament. And there are some things that are different from the Old Testament. And there are some things that are the same. But that's okay because he was always the intended goal of that. He is their sole authoritative interpreter. Now, the last couple of times I've been here, at at the end I've um, shared with you some of the more effective um, resources that are really helpful on this. Um, I think Matthew's Gospel and uh, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of um, commentary that's been given on it um, that's actually quite unhelpful. And if you do want recommendations about where to go to find and kind of unpick some of these things, um, to avoid wrestling with and wasting so much time on these things uh, the same way that I uh, had to do, Uh, please come and chat afterwards. Um, There's also a great little um, lecture that's been turned into um, almost a pamphlet uh, by the theologian Don Carson. And what he gives is 12 rules for interpreting the Old Testament in the New. So if you'd like um, to know about that, um, I'm happy to kind of point you in the right direction to get access to that. And it's a particularly useful resource in our families as we're working through the Bible to to deal with these, some of these difficult texts. It gives us a bit of a framework for, for how to interpret them. So with all that said, how about we um, come to our Lord once more in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you sent your Son to be the fulfillment of all that was anticipated in the Old Testament. We thank you that his kingdom began with his coming and at the cross and that it will one day be consummated when Christ returns and we see him face to face as we have already been thinking about and praying about and looking forward to this morning. Lord, in the meantime, as we seek to live holy and righteous lives, thank you for these words straight from the mouth of Jesus that explain for us what kingdom living looks like and help us to trust in Him and to rest in His explanation of that because He is the goal of all that the Old Testament Scriptures pointed forward to. Lord, please help us to have a righteousness of life that flows from our hearts, the same righteousness that Ezekiel predicted would happen with the coming of the new covenant and the cross. Lord, may it be something that flows from a well overflowing within us and consumes every aspect of our thoughts, behavior and attitude. May we not seek to be Christians who just seek meticulous observance of the literal letter of the law, but would you transform our hearts and our lives to be those which seek your true righteousness and love to be part of your kingdom. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death on the cross and his resurrection that gives us hope of new life to come. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.